I always find there's like this joy in having a typeface you've kind of helped build or, or even one that you've made yourself. And just that little act of like installing it on a computer and typing words out with it, it's just this simple form of joy that it makes it feel real. And it sometimes catches me every time that I'm like, oh, I made a typeface. This is really cool. I never thought you could do this when I was a kid. And, and it's, it's really, really rewarding. Hey, everybody. I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. Welcome to the weekly typographic. Our weekly episodes talk about type and design news, but we've got a bonus episode for you today. We're chatting with a designer that's innovating the field through education and their practice. It's going to be fun. Let's jump in. Today on the podcast, we have Olivia King. Olivia is an award-winning design director based in Sydney, Australia. She's worked with a wide range of clients from startups to nonprofits, leading both in-house and agency teams to create meaningful and stunning work that is filled with humanity. She caught the attention of the league last year with her thoughtfully written articles documenting her experiences art directing custom type for clients. She's currently the head of design at the healthcare tech company Eucalyptus, specializing in product, brand, and experience design, and was previously making magic happen at For the People and Us Too. Outside of her practice, she's an active member of the design community, teaching at the University of Technology, Sydney, judging awards, and mentoring young designers. Welcome, Liv. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. We're so excited to have you on. You've been on our like most wanted interview list for several months. <laughs> and it's going to be, you know, a fun way to kick off our interview programming for 2022. So, what are you up to these days? I feel like you have a broad range of experience. You're like in the design community, you're working full time. Um, what is like a typical day in the life of Liv King? Yeah, so I think lately I've, I think in the last, it feels like it's been a couple of months, but also like years at the same time. So about five months ago, I joined Eucalyptus, which is a really rapidly growing healthcare startup here in Sydney. And that was a big move for me going from, for the most part, working in agency life to startup in-house life. So bit of a switch and, and the role has been really great. It's been really challenging. I'm sort of across everything from our digital product to brands because we have not just one brand, we have five brands, which is a whole other area to dig into, but for our marketing and um, it's sort of like the role really encompasses a lot of sort of how does design work at Eucalyptus and how do we create sort of meaningful experiences in health and create um, meaningful products. So it's been really exciting. It's, it's definitely a big change. And when I joined, they'd probably grown 100 people in a month. And since then, it's another 200. So it's kind of exploding. And that's really exciting to be part of something moving so fast, but it's also very hectic. We're having designers join every few weeks. And a lot of it's been figuring out how the designers all work together and how we can make sure that you know, even if you have product designers in one area and you have, you know, art directors in another area, they're still sharing knowledge and being part of this really cohesive team. So it's that's definitely been a really interesting kind of role for me to play moving away from probably more of the craft side, which I still love and I still do, but to more of the sort of leadership role where sort of thinking about workflows and processes and stuff like that. So yeah, it's been really exciting. For sure. I mean, that growth is definitely part of the startup life, as I think a lot of people will know. I mean, what were the teams like at For the People where you were for a few years? Was it like a lot smaller? 
Yeah, so we had a team of about, it sort of fluctuated between 12 to 18 people. And that was a mix of designers and strategists and writers, which were really great. And everything was really tight and everything was really quite small and we worked quite lean. And it's definitely a bit of a mix, a bit of a change to go to, yeah, agent, uh, to an in-house role where you have everyone there and you, you know, usually like in an agency, you're sort of talking just with a client and they're that mediator between like the rest of the team in an organization. But in-house, you're sitting down with people who are going to implement the work that you're doing every day. So I think there's a lot of responsibility with it, but I, yeah, it's, it's definitely a nice change. Yeah, that's great. I'm a little bit more familiar with the work you did um, at For the People because that is what you've written about in the past. And the articles have just circulated through us at the league team and people that we love because there's such an interesting curtain pulled back sort of moment on what it's like to art direct custom type, which I truthfully don't think is like there's many much literature about that in general. First of all, custom type projects are generally much more in vogue now than they ever have been. So I think a lot of, you know, design directors are finding themselves in positions where they're doing this more than ever. And there's graphic designers that may be involved in projects like this that don't know anything about it. Then there's, you know, type designers that are like, how do I get art directors to find me so I can also be part of the custom type movement, whatever. Mm -hmm. So could you kind of just pull back the curtain a bit on what it's even like to art direct a typeface? I know you talk about this in your articles, but what is that process like? Yeah, of course. It's one of my favorite projects to work on. It's a really rewarding experience because... Look, I'm here and we're all here because we're type nerds. So I've always had a like strong passion for typography. So being able to work on a project where you are only focused on the tiny details and the craft of a letter form is just my dream. <laughs> so if I could spend my life art directing type projects and custom type, I would be extremely happy, but I don't think I can do a full-time job with that just yet. Who knows? Maybe in the future. But yeah, it's a great experience. And one part of it, I think, is probably the biggest part is to having a really good relationship with the typographer that you're working with. And I've been lucky enough to work with a few different typographers, but the, the main one that I've worked with is a typographer in France called Mathieu Rigueur. I'm not going to pronounce his right, name right, but he's been someone that I've sort of worked with throughout my career for the last 10 years. And he came to, I guess, we worked with him very like years ago when I was a junior designer I wasn't part of this project but I kind of first saw what it was like to commission a typeface when I was part of a little brand studio in Sydney that was part of a bigger advertising agency and we were doing a rebrand for Optus which is sort of the biggest telco here in telecommunications company here in Australia and we made a custom typeface and Mathieu came along and he built out two different typefaces and it was just an amazing experience and then since then, we've sort of worked with him or I've worked with him on a number of projects. And I guess the process is pretty similar along the way. Like it sort of usually follows the sort of same sort of structure. Generally, when you start, you're sort of really trying to question, why are we making this? Is there a, pro is there a typeface out there that exists that will do the job? Or usually it's a case of we've kind of reached this sort of roadblock where it's just that typeface we're really looking for whether it's trying to get the right personality in the type or the right craft or the right kind of tone doesn't exist. So that's a big motivator often for choosing to go down the route of commissioning a typeface. I think lately the other motivating kind of factor is to have something that's proprietary and that you can own because 
I think for a lot of companies, especially looking at big companies that are doing this now, the licensing fees on having a typeface that you bought at scale across not just maybe like 10 years ago, it was like you just had to buy one license or a couple of licenses for the desktop and that was it. But you're looking at how many followers you have, how many side visits you have, like the, the pricing around type, which I could also get into in another whole other discussion point makes I think having your own typeface that you can own the licenses for a lot more affordable these days and actually a really viable route to commissioning and typeface and reason to have one so yeah I think that's the sort of question mark a question you're trying to ask at the beginning like why are we making this and then where I think you go next is sort of trialing different versions and trialing things that maybe are close to what you want or sort of have properties of the typeface that you're really kind of looking for and that's sort of like helping you make a decision like it's effectively helping you make the brief for the typographer like you're trying to find out how do I direct this person to know you know is it that it's a display font is it a text type what personality do I need in this is it hand-drawn all the things that we would classify typeface like is it serif is it sans serif is it condensed is it bold is it all those things like what do I need out this typeface to make it really usable for this project so you're really trying to find set the parameters and then you sort of talk to the typographer and have a really good back and forth ideally with them and that's something that is really great about mature is that we can give him a brief and know that he is going to bring his own flair to the work I think like I've worked with typographers in the past as well who it's a bit more of that back and forth you just give them a brief they go away they kind of do the work but in this instance and I think ideally with type projects you're really collaborative with that typographer and you're sort of working together and letting it's sort of like I would sort of classify it almost like a bit more of an artist sort of relationship like you want to respect that that typographer is going to bring something to the table and let them have a bit of creative license because at the end of the day I love that I can say to Mitchell like I've kind of got an idea of what I want from this typeface but you're the expert and I actually want to see what you do with this brief. So I'm not going to literally draw out every single part of this and make it an extremely tight brief. I'm going to make it so that you can have fun with this. And then I think the more fun you have in a project that it always shows up in the work and it always makes for a much better piece of work. So I think that's, that's very much part of it. And then from there, I think you're sort of going back and forth. You're going back and forth and looking at drafts and first versions of things. And ideally you get prototypes which are, you know, a limited character set, which you can start to work into your designs to see, is this working? What does this feel like? And I think the, the Culture Amp project that I worked on last year was a really good example of something where we probably went through like eight or nine different type sort of prototypes to get the feel of the one that actually felt really good. And we would sort of play with it in the designs and the mock-ups that we're working on and then we would go back and we'd give feedback and so it's sort of that back and forth and collaborative kind of nature in that development stage and then once we're sort of happy with the tone and sort of even just I think what you're looking for at that point is does the ribbon feel right does the spacing feel right aesthetically is this kind of feeling aligned to what we want here and and then if that's all feeling good you sort of then start to hone in on all right this is the sort of typeface we want and then how do we then like work on characters and how do we work on spacing and how do we think about how this is used in practice? And after that, you're sort of building and finessing and 
you define how many characters you want and how many languages you want to support, if you've got special features you want to have, and then you sort of end up with a typeface and you can install it. And I think there's like, I always find there's like this joy in having a typeface you've kind of helped build or, or even one that you've made yourself. And just that little act of like installing it on a computer and typing words out with it, it's just this simple form of joy that it makes it feel real and it sometimes catches me every time that I'm like oh I made a typeface this is really cool I never thought you could do this when I was a kid and and it's it's really really rewarding yeah I feel like when even when I was in design school so it's like in the 2010s they made type design first of all feel very inaccessible they were like well you shouldn't touch that like that's for the experts and then also they'd be like oh, you learn all of these celebrity type designers and then like you don't even know about the indie ones or the ones that are literally like learning and will soon be the type designers that you're going to be like hiring when you're like a designer and stuff like that. So I love learning. I love like hearing how collaborative that whole experience is because I think in general in type design, it is becoming more collaborative. I think people are helping each other from across the globe, either learn type design, find out of new type designers, all sorts of things. So that's so exciting. I mean, I'm so curious, type uh, font is such a big project. And I love hearing how intimate your relationship with the type designer would be in that scenario because you're just like really just working on something together. But what were the first visual things that you got from the type designer? Were they like one word with like five different variations of a font kind of? Or were they like, did he hand over files in the first phase? How are you parsing through that and figuring out what path to continue on? I think it depends on the project. I'll use CultureRef as an example again, because I think that's a unique one. And there was a lot of depth of thinking that went into it. But for CultureRef, Matcha really wanted to work with a letterer in his studio. And so the first thing we got back from him was sketches, like scans of pages where they're really looking at what happens when you write in this particular type of pen or this particular slant. And is it that we're at 15 degrees or we're at 25 degrees of an angle? And what happens when you have texture of a letter and a pen that is written really big? And then what happens when it's really small? And do we like the texture at that size or this size? And so it was actually really analog for that project, which I really loved. Like it was such a really nice experience. And we'd given him some phrases to work with, which I think was part of like being able to visualize the type even if it was analog and we couldn't play with it it really helped us understand in the voice of the brand that we were creating what does this look like because I think if you'd sort of done just standard placeholder text and if someone was just playing with lorem ipsum or just showing you some characters it's very hard to visualize like what that actually looks like if it's not sort of trying to communicate a message and so I think that is as a sort of way of even briefing in a typographer and having being able to see the language you're going to use in the brand in the typeface made a huge difference for us. So, yeah, it was very much just the sketches and the initial kind of concepts to start with. And they were really wide and varied. It was like, what is, you know, more loopy kind of style of handwriting? So I guess for context, if people haven't seen Culture Amp, the typeface we did for them was a handwritten font. So it was very much like, the expression within someone's handwriting and what happens if you write really fast or really slow and really carefully and all of that actually really informs the letter forms that you're sort of building so I think that's pretty typical for for something like that and I think for other projects that are a bit more 
the standard sort of type, you know, you are still getting back sort of sample phrases, um, sort of strings of letters, or just even like very early concepts, like how does this, as an example, we did a project a few years ago for the Biennale of Sydney, which is sort of a big art festival that happens here. And we, we made seven different typefaces for that. And that was a project where at the beginning, I think we knew we needed them all to fit within the same sort of framework because we would eventually mix and match the letters so that you would have maybe a chunk of text and within that you might have three different typefaces happening. It was sort of part of this sort of arty concept that we had and it meant that all had to share the same letter height and they had to share the same proportions. So when we got back the initial kind of exploration there, it was really like, okay, functionally, like what does this look like? How do we keep them all in the same proportion? And I, th- I think you're like in that early concept phase, you're sort of looking to stretch. At least I'm looking to work with typographers and, and people who are happy to sort of really push the edges of your brief and give you back initial thoughts that are beyond what you would have expected as well. So, yeah, so that's kind of what it looks like, I guess, at the beginning and early stages. Oh, I definitely want to talk a little bit more about that culture amp font. It is very bold to go in (laughs) to design a custom handwriting font for a client. I really haven't seen much custom type that goes down that path particularly and is a beautiful font. It's like the handwriting font of designers' dreams. It's like what we all want out of our (laughs) handwriting fonts, yet we can't always get. So many times handwriting fonts can go wrong because they, you know, they look too childish or they look almost too calligraphic and formal and they don't pull off an adult person's handwriting. What subtleties did you and the team have to think about to incorporate into the design to overcome those reputations? Yeah, it's a really tricky type of typeface to work on. And I think I wrote about this in the article, but the first versions we got back mature and this isn't anything against him it it just is I think by nature of making something that you can sort of use like they were doing all those things that you were talking about they looked standardized they didn't look particularly unique or sort of interesting they they kind of had fallen into sort of a category of like script and handwriting typefaces that I was like oh I really don't want to create something like this and I think it's because maybe typographers are sort of so used to sort of finding the sort of um, the ways you replicate forms and pieces of letters and that becomes like a typeface. But what that meant was that it just looked quite standard and unified and automated. Like it didn't look like a human had wrote it or written it. And I think that was a big kind of turning point for us where we sort of looked at this and we were like, yeah, it looks like it's written with a pen, but it doesn't look like it's from someone. And the reason why we really wanted to make this typeface in the, in the first place was that like Culture Amp as a brand is all about people. It's all about understanding how people work together and picking up on subtle cues from, um, you know, what happens in, in interpersonal kind of connections with people. And we wanted to bring humanity into the brand and, and this typeface was meant to do that. But without having this feeling of this is someone's handwriting it kind of just felt generic. And so we went back to Matcha and we said, look, we need to look at sort of how we build in quirks in this. And we sort of referenced a few, found a few references. I'd even looked at some like family members who have very distinctive type, like or ways of writing. Like my mum has this has beautiful handwriting and I've always actually wanted to make a font out of it, which 
another project one day. But you can sort of see that some people over time have just developed a very unique way of writing a letter. And we really felt like that was something we needed to go back to and figure out. And so what we then looked at was if you look at the typeface, there's there's certain letters that are very distinctive. On the default level, the R is pretty much a capital and the Y has this kind of really interesting kind of, it's not really, I'm sort of like gesticulating with my hand, which no one can see, but it's not written in a traditional Y. It looks like a little swirl and there's little things here and there that really make it kind of feel unique. Um, the other thing that we did, which I think was a really big kind of element that helped was rather than have like a uniform baseline, we incorporated this thing, which Macho kind of called it the dancing baseline, which was sort of like, it meant that the letters looked like they sort of weren't evenly sitting on one line. They sort of moved up and down as you would if you're writing anything on a page. It sort of isn't so like structured, like the natural way that you would write a word is that there's there's little movements up and down. And so we needed to sort of order, I think Macho kind of wrote a script that helped even that out. So like if you had a word, it sort of felt balanced. And I don't know how he does this. This is getting into type design that is so far beyond me where you're actually building in code into the type, which I find amazing. But he'd sort of figured out a way to essentially create this like stable midline through a word, but it meant that the letters themselves kind of moved up and down along that word. But as a word itself, it felt balanced because you kind of had evened it out. Like it was, it was amazing. And I think that was a really important way for us to kind of make it feel natural. And probably the last feature that we were really big on was having contextual alternates so that you're typing away. And if you're typing a word that has like two O's together or duplicates of, of letters, you're not using the same one. So if you actually look into the font file for this, I think every letter has about four different variations and they're tiny little differences where it's like the pen finishes like a little higher on one or it like angles slightly differently. Well, it's a little more texture on one, but they're, they're subtle enough that when you type it out, you can tell that that isn't the same letter replicated. And I think that's probably the big thing that you see in type, which is handwritten, that people probably make the mistake of doing is it's just the same letters which is on a text type cool that's what you do like why would you need to have two different ones for the most part but in handwriting you're never going to write the same letter the same each time even if you're kind of going over and over again it's just it's like those little human touches and imperfections that were like a really important part about building this typeface it's really nice I like that midline technique. I don't know. We have to, Mike is always trying to pressure me to make a, a typeface with my handwriting, but if I do, I will bring that into it. That's genius. <laughs> I love that. Okay. So speaking of working on custom type with clients, we all know what baseline means. We all know like ascenders, descenders. We all know it so well that we just casually talk about typo cab and everyone looks at us crazy sometimes when we're in a room with people. So how do you describe type in a way that creates a common vocabulary with clients, specifically for custom type projects? It's one thing if they're choosing typefaces, I think they can kind of pick up on some vernacular, you know, serif, sans serif, condensed, but when we talk about things that are so in the weeds of the details, how do you do it? Do you talk about like the emotional components to certain ways type can be written? Big question mark. <laughs> yeah, it can be really challenging for sure. There's been definitely a few projects like Culture and we were really lucky that we were working with their internal design team 
on that project. So the language between us on type could get to that level and get to really like nerdy details, which I loved, but we've definitely worked with, with clients that don't have that. And it's definitely hard. Probably it's sort of this mix where you don't want to dumb it down so much for them that they sort of feel like they're not understanding the principles of what you're trying to do. Like you're sort of trying to communicate to them the important parts and reducing it down to something that's really basic would be kind of doing a disservice to the project and doing a disservice to actually building a typeface. So we do try and use the same language that we would maybe use with the typographer, but take the time to sort of explain what those are and why those are kind of elements that we need to focus on. But I think probably the the biggest thing is if if you're working with a client that doesn't have like any knowledge whatsoever and they're really new to this, I think it's very much about two things. I think it's about bringing them along on the journey. So not making it so that it's like, I'll go away and do this project in this typeface and then I'll just show you. Show them the process around building that typeface so they understand and they can kind of buy in and, and see what that's like. Because I think that then helps them understand that even if they don't have the necessarily the words for what you're doing, they can see it progress and see how it's been crafted and you can kind of see that process. And I think the other part is to make sure that the reason you're building a typeface or commission one is really strong. There's a very good rationale for why it should exist because I think it is a little bit of a long process and it can to some clients feel costly. Like we've done custom typefaces for non-for-profits or I've done them and, and also for really big clients as well. And especially for the non-for-profits, you sort of, it can be a big cost to them initially or seem like a big cost. So you're sort of trying to give them a sense of what role does this play and why is there a really strong reason for us to build this? And so when you sort of get to those points where you're not really sure, does this work for the brand or they might be questioning whether it's working, they can kind of go back to this feeling like the culture amp was about injecting personality and injecting humanity into the brand. So that was a really good rationale for us to sort of just all rally around and know that we're sort of, we're all trying to get to this point where we can have this particular asset in the brand that every time we use it will communicate a really important message to our you know audience and so I think those two things are really important and you can kind of figure out the rest along the way and take some time to educate people if you need to or explain things but I haven't really encountered too much problems outside of that where people don't understand sort of the little intricacies because I think it's part like when you look at the bigger picture and you know what you're trying to build together like it it doesn't really matter in the end if you can't find exactly the right word and a lot of the time a client might just be like oh it's you know the the thing on top of the eye or like I don't really like the the way that there's like a little wiggle there or like they use their own language but you get it like it doesn't need to be perfect and maybe that's part of the role of the the designer and the art director is to be that conduit between the designer, sorry, the typographer and the, the client and actually make those interpretations and, and help that translation happen. Yeah. I have a personal vendetta against the word tittle. I'm like, let's just call it the dot <laughs> of the eye, guys. We are all uncomfortable saying this word. We can just call it the dot of the eye. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> I get that. I think it's a kind of interesting saying that you're working on custom type for a nonprofit and typically nonprofits have really tight budgets. 
And it's probably easy for a nonprofit to say, hey, there's Google fonts. There's hundreds of fonts we would not have to pay any money for licensing for that would be functional. How was a project working with a nonprofit designing custom type like? And, you know, what was something that you were convincing them on to go a custom type route? Yeah, I think there's two projects that come to mind, both the ones that I worked with for the people. One was... In the end, I think this was actually a really interesting solution to the how do we not spend an enormous amount of cost on this project, but how do we get something that is custom and feels unique for us? And we sort of reached this point in the project where we realised that they, they really didn't quite have enough, even though Metro had kind of discounted his costs like crazy. He just They just didn't really have the funds to commission a typographer to spend that time on it. And so I was racking my brain thinking, like, what are all the ways that we could still get a custom type but make it really easy for people to use? And it occurred to me that there is a lot of open source fonts out there and we started to look for ones that had sort of the proportions of what we were were after. And a lot of the Google fonts and the things that we'd found just didn't really fit but it was sort of around the time that I was getting really interested in, in dabbling in type myself. And the brief was really about adding ink traps to type, which is not the hardest thing to do. Like it wasn't about recreating a new typeface and actually making it completely new and different. It was actually just about adding little features that would make it a bit more unique. So we found a typeface, I think it was on Open Foundry. Actually, no, it's a, it's also, it's on that, it's on Google Fonts Archiva or Archiva, whichever, however you want to talk about it. And we kind of could, we looked at the licensing of it and with the, I think it's an open font license, essentially you can manipulate those fonts as much as you want, as long as you're not going to then sell that on as your own custom font. And the nice thing about what we were making for this particular project, which was called Derwent Valley, it was for a community in Tassie in Tasmania and it was never going to be something that they were going to sell or use for profit it's just for their community it's for people to write a sign for tourists to be like hey go check out this B&B up the road or like we've got jams for sale from the Derwent Valley like it wasn't didn't need to be something that was like super commercial it was it was always going to be something just functional but for a way for them to tie their region into a bit of an identity to help people feel like they're you know they're in this place they're in the Derwent Valley and with that comes like all these kind of really amazing places to visit or things to eat or things to see so that was like a really kind of important I think thing for us was to make sure that it was really usable for the community and under the font license it wasn't that we were going to sell it. It was just that we were going to give it over to them and they weren't going to sell it either. So, you know, you could actually create something that ended up being about 11,000 people in this community. It's the community itself is probably about the size of Yosemite. It's it's pretty big as an area. And if you bought 11,000 licenses for a typeface, it's not possible. Like you would never be able to do that. But with this, we could sort of create something that felt custom and felt unique to them. And it was all still open source. And, you know, the typeface itself is open source. Like someone could pick up our Derwent Valley typeface and then manipulate it again and continue to manipulate it and change it. So I think that's a really interesting solution for low-cost custom typefaces that, like, I haven't really seen many people do something like that. And I've since had a few people, like, reach out and ask, like, what was the process and how did you go about it? And usually it is because they've got someone like a non-for-profit or 
a company that sort of can't afford the cost of a custom one, but, you know, there's still value in bringing them something that is custom and unique to them. I can see Micah's, like, heart just so warm. He's been smiling this whole <laughs> time. I know he's like, that's the mission of the league. But, uh, Micah, has anyone done that with any of the league's open source typefaces? Do you know? Well, I guess that's the part and also the beauty of it is that we don't always know because you were so open about it. The information got to spread and a lot of smaller companies who are maybe doing that, nobody knows about it, but it's at least really satisfying just seeing it used and knowing that it's allowed to be passed along to the people who need to use it. I think that in itself is often satisfying by itself. Yeah. Me and Micah also were already aware of the Derwent Valley story, but we're so happy that we got you to say it out loud on the podcast because it is, <laughs> it's definitely one of my favorite typographic stories of all time. It shows how beautiful like the open source community can be and it shows really creative problem solving. It's like a pretty innovative solution and I just think it's so inspiring and I really do hope that people see that story and can take that as a potential road to go down and something that values typography and also values the client and what they're able to do. So I love that. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to see more people doing that too. Yeah, if people do want to see your documentation, you wrote a whole beautiful article about it. I know they could just Google Olivia King, Medium, Derwent Valley. It will show up. Last question on the custom type realm, and then we're going to move on to some other questions. But there's like more indie type designers entering the field every day, which is a very exciting part of the industry right now. Um, and do you have advice for how they could get noticed by design directors like yourself or like your friends that are kind of leading projects, whether you're looking for either a retail font or commissioning a custom typeface, how can indie type designers get the attention of people that could purchase stuff and like help their little economy? Definitely have a website. I can't tell you how many type designers I've encountered or like met or like sort of told about and then you sort of go to find more about them and there's nothing it's just like a void and it's always on the to-do list for any type of designer is I must get my folio done I must get my website up but it's crazy how much that lack of visibility and lack of seeing projects just it makes it really hard to sort of take a leap and trust someone to sort of carry through a project that you want to do so get yourself out there and whether that's even Instagram, like I follow a few, I think, indie typographers who just spend a lot of time putting experiments and putting their work up on Instagram. And that is probably like, if that's all you can do, do it. I'm not great at sharing work all the time, but I try and make an effort to do it every now and then because I think it's it's really good to be able to then be able to see what you're working on, see the range of skills that you've got and then you sort of have a bit more confidence saying like, oh, yeah, like this may be someone who's up and coming, but I can see that they've got skills in making text typefaces or they've got skills in display or they're really pushing the boundaries of how you can construct letter forms. Like I think all those things are what like I'm looking for in a type designer, someone who can like really reinterpret type in a way that I haven't thought about or that like other people haven't thought about and can potentially bring their own unique take on like a letter form or like a set of letter forms that that's really interesting and really feels unique so I think that's a big part of it and I think the other part is really investing time in designing your specimens and really thinking about showing if you've got a typeface that you've been working on that you really love 
really think about how you can show it in its best light. And I think as a designer who sometimes dabbles in type, like I think that's something that's always top of mind for me. But when you think about it the other way, like I think that's, you know, not all typographers have the design skills. So you have to market your type in a way that then other people look at that type and say, oh, that's something that's interesting. Or I can see how that would actually work really well for my project. Or that's inspired me to think about making a typeface that's really similar or, you know, I can build on that. And so much of that is just helping visualize how it can play a role and thinking about your specimens. And I've seen some specimens for type that are just amazing. I think like, you know, Grilly does custom websites for every single one of their typefaces, which is just every time I do that, I just spend like an hour on that that website and like looking at all the intricacies and going into like the detail. And I'm not saying you have to do like that level. That's obviously like an insane level, but I think a lot of type foundries that do a really good job of this are really thinking about treating their typefaces like a little design project and being able to market that in a way that is like kind of bridges that gap between this is like a set of a, a, a typeface and a set of letters and how was it usable in a project. So I think that's that's another big thing that I think grabs at least my attention when I see type being used is, yeah, the p- potential and the possibility of how it could be used and and how that person might be someone I want to reach out to and work with as well. Interesting. There's like similarities when you compare like the microsites and like seeing things in use and how important that is for someone that's thinking about purchasing a font. But then also when you're trying to sell in a font to your clients, you were saying that you show them the font like in their mock-ups with their brand. It's interesting to see those parallels there because definitely very real. I mean, we're huge fans of microsites, which I feel like just have been new in the past like 10, 15 years, which is like kind of crazy to think about, but we'll like make fonts more memorable. We'll like, I think like can get people like really hyped up about fonts too, because they're like, oh my gosh, you know, there's like a thousand ways to do a microsite. There's a thousand ways to do a specimen. That's really good advice. Love to hear it. So you said you're a designer that dabbles in type design. I know you do type design. I know you're doing it. You're like dabbling, <laughs> but you're also doing it. And your typeface inclusive sans is really interesting. And one of the main attributes is that it's super accessible, which I think is this like also beautiful subgenre that's starting to emerge in type design. Like people are finally thinking about accessibility for all sorts of type of people, depending, you know, what the typeface is focusing on. So This is a question from Steph. It was a very smart question. How do you determine the set of parameters that make a typeface inclusive and accessible? And are there any trade-offs when you're like in pursuit of creating such an accessible font? Is it accessible to some people, but, but not others? We can't, you know, please everyone. So how does that conceptual thinking kind of work when you were working on inclusive sans? Yeah, it, um, I think it's something that's been like, percolating in my brain for a couple of years now and it making that type of typeface I think started a few years ago when we had a project come through for the people which I wasn't working on at the time but we had a one of our creative directors Joe Roker was working on it and she it was for a company that I guess specializes with people with disability and, and sort of making everything accessible and the whole premise of the brand was that it was inclusive for all and she had really gone deep on thinking at that level of like how the character is accessible and so this probably was probably about four years ago and and at that or three years ago and that point I hadn't even really thought about it like I thought about 
accessibility for type in terms of letter sizes and color contrasts and spacing that I'd never thought about it on the character level. And she had done this research around a few different areas for specific characters and where things, particularly for people who are hard of seeing or maybe have dyslexia, really struggle to make that distinction between specific letters. And at that point, like, I was like, oh, this is really great. This is really great. And I really wish there were more typefaces out there that did this. But like, and then over the next like couple of years, we we would sort of come up against this time and time again. We try and find an accessible typeface that really ticked the boxes for those parameters. And we just couldn't find them. And it was really, really tricky. And I think we got to a, a couple of projects and then we we're just like, oh. either they, there's a couple that exist, but they just don't feel quite contemporary. They don't feel like they have the style that you'd want in some of the work that we were doing and I was like this doesn't feel like it's miles away from being impossible because I think after doing some research myself as well it seemed like there's a there's probably the fundamental principle is like you want to make sure that the characters are differentiated enough from each other that they're not that they're distinctive and that they're easy to interpret and a lot of that is like we make really quick easy there's like quick wins in typography where you might flip your D and your B. You can flip a lot of letters to create the alternative. And that means that if those letters are put together, like P's and Q's and D's and B's, it's like, it's, it's really hard to distinguish that. And even things like, you know, capital I next to two L's that are lowercase, like in Illinois, as a good example, that often means you have sort of like three lines at the beginning of a word and then it goes on. It's actually really hard to sort of differentiate them. So it's kind of finding this way of creating the letter forms that are differentiated from each other, but then still kind of maintaining this nice kind of feel across the rest of the, the typeface. And if you were to make the most accessible typeface in the world, you'd probably end up with something like Comic Sans because, and like people have sort of famously said like Comic Sans is actually very accessible because well, the letters are really different from each other and it makes it quite readable. But obviously for projects and for some of the work that we're doing, that's not the tone that we would like in our our projects and the design. So really for me, it was about like trying to find yeah, that balance between like creating something that's a contemporary sans serif that also had all those those important attributes. And so I, I think combined the research that Joe had done and I'd been doing a lot of reading and there's a book that I've got which is uh, called Reading Letters by Sophie Bayer. I think she's Danish. And that basically goes through a huge amount of her research that she's been doing about accessibility of letters and how people read words. And that was amazing because I think there was, there was even more levels of information in there that I hadn't really thought about. So like even just, you know, small things around like differentiating your O and your zero and even just whether the skeleton or the rough kind of shape of a letter shares a similar shape. Like if you have like an S that has a sort of similar skeleton to maybe like an eight or to maybe a flourished F or something, like even small things like that, maybe for people who are very able-bodied and can see quite easily that's not something we would really struggle with but for a lot of people that can even just at a distance can be really hard to differentiate so there was so many details in that which I think were really helpful and so that kind of for me just set up this checklist of all right I'm gonna make a typeface that feels one like really close to the taste of a type a sans serif that I really like so I was kind of looking at some really 
somewhere between like kind of like a neo-grotesque kind of style where it has like a little bit of personality but kind of a high x height and something that feels really kind of contemporary but also didn't do those things that sort of those those quick wins it didn't flip the letters there was little kind of elements added to the letters that made them differentiated from each other I would say that the trade-offs it doesn't tick every box and like I said, if you wanted to push it all the way to the sort of end of the accessibility spectrum, you're going to end up with Comic Sans. So the trade-off is trying to find that balance, I think, of knowing that at some point you're kind of drawing a line and saying like, this is going to compromise the general look and feel of this typeface that I want to achieve and the sort of taste that I have for what I want it to be. So some of the, like, I think I put certain little tails on the D and the Q and stuff like that. And arguably those tails should be bigger, like maybe the E isn't isn't open enough, but that then pushed it away from being a neo-grotesque to something completely different. So I think it's it's a bit of a balance. So is it a perfect, fully inclusive typeface? Probably not, but I do think it's a lot better than anything that I've kind of come across. And I really hope that there's a lot more people thinking about when they design typefaces or when they just choose a typeface for a client, like how accessible is this for people and how readable will this be? for whoever's going to use this. It's crazy to think that for so long, the default sans serif of several decades was Helvetica, which is like very inaccessible. And and like just, you know, we think of Helvetica being so boring, but those closed counters can be so confused with each other. And again, the straight line test of the Illinois. Oh my gosh. It's just It seems like a basic thing. I do this a bit more in like digital design where I'm always thinking about color contrast. And now I can't not see something where people have used different color combinations that are inaccessible like I kind of it's so baked into the way that I design now that I can look at a color and pretty much tell you whether it's going to be passing like double a contrast or triple a contrast or not and I think the same should go with typefaces I think people should be really baking that into the way that they think about what typefaces they choose because it's just a constraint that helps you choose something else that's going to be you know better for everyone and it shouldn't be a hard choice to make like I think if you're going to choose like between a typeface that is a little more accessible than the other like you should be choosing the more accessible one and you should be thinking when you're typing out like a word and you're choosing the typeface you do like you should stress test it against all those words like the Illinois or like all the all the different combinations that might help you determine how readable it is and yeah, now I sort of see little like alarm bells if I see typefaces that are like quite accessible. I'm like, you could have gone with something better. Like that doesn't even look that much different. It doesn't change the overall feel of it because some of these sans serifs particularly are just so similar that really if you'd just gone with something a little bit different, a little bit more accessible, it no one would have noticed. <laughs> but it would make a big difference for a lot of people. Yeah. It's so funny. We still hear, why are people still making typefaces? And then it's like, why are people still making sans serif typefaces? It's like, okay, you can just listen to that conversation next time you're like questioning it (laughs) because it's so true. And like, I mean, it it is like a beautiful evolution that we're making in typography. And it's crazy. It really hasn't been brought up before. But okay, I could talk about that for like another hour. (laughs) The only thing I, I sort of add to that is I actually think there's more research to be done in this. One thing I would love to see is Sophie's book is sort of one of the few ones I could find or the few talks or people thinking about this. So I think there's part one is like understanding what do we need to know more about in this world of how you how humans read letters and 
and what we can do at a character level to, to change that. But I also think, and this is something I want to be doing, the pandemic has kind of made this a little bit harder, but I want to be user testing what we're building as well because it's not enough just to build the thing and be like, cool, it ticked the boxes and it actually seems fine. Like we need to actually put that through its like tests and actually see with people who have these sort of issues reading or have difficulty with certain typefaces, like is this actually better for them? Because a lot of this is based on assumptions and I think there's not enough research to be fully confident that some of these changes are actually going to make a difference. So I would love people to be doing more research and running more tests to actually see if what these things are that we're making are actually really usable. Exactly. I mean, Mike and I in the podcast have come across so many articles that are like, design innovation has happened when people think about accessibility. There was one article, I'll never forget this, was talking about how it's important for like an iPhone to be able to use with one hand. I mean, you can think about people that may only have one hand. You can think about new parents that are holding babies for the majority of their day. When we start thinking about accessibility, it's like, oh my God, how were we not thinking about that before? And it like literally makes better design. It just like fosters better design and like. Yes. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. I think so much about like my thing at the moment has been um, uh, fine motor skills and, and how like small things like in packaging make it really hard for people with fine motor skill who don't have difficulty with fine motor skills to, to remove a label or like open a bottle and stuff like that. And stuff that I I might pick up and struggle with and I don't have problems with that like a lot of people wouldn't and my grandma had motor neuron disease or I think in the states it's ALS and that takes that from you and you know if you want to just open something like that's not an easy job for a lot of people so yeah Mm -hmm. I can go on about designing for inclusion on so many levels (laughs) totally I I mean all your insights were like so interesting. I've been thinking about them for a while. I love like the minutia of the typography too and accessibility. I have a few more questions and then we're going to wrap it up. One that I'm really excited to ask is about your writing. So, you know, I think the way that you articulate a creative process and the decision makings that happen during that process is just really well done. And you've written on topics like your type projects, but also like things like mental health in the workplace and what it's like to enter the design field and the price we often have to pay to enter the industry. I want to know what inspires you to write. Probably the the main thing is this feeling of being able to share learnings. Most projects that I do, there is some new lesson that I take away from that. And there's something really nice and I think this is also why like I like teaching as well is because I don't want to keep that to myself I want other people to sort of see a different way of thinking and to to have that lesson and to to think about something in a different way so I think it's a big part of that and I probably would say full credit to my creative director who I worked with for a number of years at For the People and Ree, which is like a where I started Jason Little he was very big on documenting and, and writing about the design process and so I think he really helped push me to write more about it and I think that's been like a really good sort of inspiration and and something for me to remember each time I make something is that someone else can learn from this and there's an I think there's also this element of maybe this is a bit like selfish but I sometimes really love people being able to see the depth of thinking that we actually went through on a project you can put together a case study but that doesn't really do the justice of explaining the story behind how you got to where you got to and 
it doesn't highlight like those moments where like as a team you sat together for like hours and you sort of bounced ideas and you worked through really complicated the problems and the challenges that you're facing and then someone had this really great idea that was just like a light bulb moment and changed everything for a project and some of the stuff that I think I've written about is is trying to like pull the you know covers off what it's like to make something or do something and, and sort of have those little like little moments and insights that really shape a project and I think it's just maybe no one would appreciate the sort of tiny little details and you know like on the Doan Valley typeface like why we had a rationale for the ink traps because it was connected to the printing uh, mills in the area and the flow of the river that goes through the valley and that someone's probably going to look at that and be like oh that's just like post-rationalization bullshit but I think that that helps us make decisions about a direction for the work that we're doing and I think that's really interesting when people can see the process behind it so I think I think that's one part of it in terms of like sharing knowledge and sharing how we can be better designers or a different way of thinking and then the other part I think around the articles around like the cost of entry in design and the mental health is is I, I just deeply care about some of these areas and I think if I can add a new perspective or add my voice to raise a bit of awareness around this particularly in areas that I just don't think are talked about as much or have been talked about in the past I think those have been big motivators for me to be able to just share some thoughts as someone in the design industry and and how I think we can sort of create a better community for everyone that's beautiful I feel like your writing inspires me oh well, thank you <laughs> all right Two classic interview questions that we always ask. Uh, who's a person working right now in the type and design world that you admire? Oh, this is a tough one. I think a lot of people probably admire this person, like James Evanson at Ono. Like everything at Ono is is really inspiring to me because I think it's it feels unique. It feels different. There's every time I look at the work from Ono, it just feels like the word that comes to mind is this like it just has this amazing rhythm like it feels so considered in the way that it all comes together as a typeface and I think I think there's something really interesting there and I think it's been interesting kind of seeing like a one person sort of studio I think I think he's built it up a little bit more to be a little bit bigger now um really grow to be like so well regarded in the industry and like I know he works with a lot of collaborators, so I think it's not just the one person, but um, I think that's been really, really cool to see. Um, there's a French type designer who I follow on Instagram who I think I'm going to really mispronounce her name, Margot Levesque, who I think has been doing really, really nice lettering and um, type projects that what's been nice to sit or see, I think, is is that she's been noticed by lots of bigger clients, but also, I think I saw recently, like, she's still looking to learn. Like, she's still looking for people to help critique her work and build up her process. And I think that sort of, you know, seeing someone really early in that stage has been really cool. And, I mean, honestly, I think the other the other big part of people that I admire in sort of the type of design work are the people teaching the courses for some of these, um, the bigger programs. And even the small ones, like, I when I did, I did a um, Principles of Type Design with, Troy Leinster and he had some amazing tutors and and people who came in to give us advice and coaching and I think they're probably the like what's the word I, they're sort of the unrecognized sort of heroes in design at the moment who are sort of helping build these younger type designers up and and sort of spread 
the craft and and help people build their skill set. And so, I mean, there's so many that I think they don't get the love as much. And so, like, I would I'm sort of giving them a shout out because I think the work that that people are doing in terms of like lending their time and, and efforts to to help continue the craft and and make it I think as popular as it is today is really inspiring for me. Yeah, no, I, I definitely feel that a lot. It's been a beautiful thing to see the industry like grow and people being so generous. I think that is what makes the type design industry better now than it ever has been before. Um, all right, last question. You have had so much creative success, have worked with so many cool clients, have gotten so many cool gigs, but what's been the hardest part of your experience in the creative field so far? Look, I probably would say the pandemic, which is a boring answer because I think we're all over it, but I think it's the working remote part. I think for a while, it's there are definitely moments where it's fun. And I mean, we've probably had it a lot better here in Australia for a very long time not so much at the moment but we've sort of been able to have a bit of like connection with people and there's been times where I've been able to go into the studio and work collaboratively with people but I think for the last few months it's been very much like a lot online a lot on zoom a lot of those little missed human connections where like you walk past someone's screen and they're doing something amazing and it's really cool and they probably never would have shown you that because they've they've decided it's actually not not relevant and then it inspires someone else to pick up something a different direction and like those little like fortuitous kind of moments I think they're really hard to have when you're remote and I think I'm really missing that at the moment and having those sort of like really strong connections with your team I think you can kind of do as many like online games and and team bonding stuff on zoom but there's a point where it's you kind of need human connection so um I think that's probably been the hardest part. Like we've definitely learned a lot and I think the processes we have or I've, and, and the ones that I've tried to definitely build into like Eucalyptus since joining have, have really been about making the work that we do really transparent and really open and like making Slack and, and the way that we share and work together really collaborative. But I'm definitely missing just having like a wall where you can pin up printouts of the work in you know all different ways and then you leave it up there and then someone from a completely different team walks past and they're like oh have you thought about that like I've actually been doing this project on this thing and then it completely changes the direction but that sort of lack of visibility in remote has been I think really challenging for design yeah for everybody the seemingly eternal just just damper on things these days. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to bring it down to end the podcast. It's okay. I should have switched the questions, truly. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's very okay. We both appreciate like the honesty and transparency and that, you know, will make someone else just feel a little bit less alone when they kind of like feel like that next time they're working. Yeah. So I yeah. get it. Liv, you've been so generous so educational and like brought so much to this like conversation I'm gonna be like stewing over so many of the ideas that we talked about and I'm I'm like so glad we got a chat I don't know you work you've worked on so many cool things you bring such a cool perspective to your design projects and I don't know I feel like this is just gonna be awesome people are gonna dig this conversation I'm really glad to have done this it was so fun and I love the work that you guys are doing too so yeah it's just been amazing to be a part of it Amazing. If people want to find you, 
You are Olivia King, not Olivia Kane. I know there's only two <laughs> different letters, but where can people find you on the internet? Probably Instagram is probably where I'm most active. So I think I'm at live underscore underscore king. And yeah, it's probably the most active place you'll find me. Otherwise, I've got a website, liviaking.com as well, if you want to see any sort of recent projects as well. Or Behance. I think I sort of dabble in Behance every now and then too. I have seen a Behance. I stalked the crap out of you before this, so I know where you're at. (laughs) Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure. And yeah, thank you again. Thank you so much.